Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Kay, a senior editor at Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent, grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by going to quillette.com and becoming a paid subscriber. This subscription will also give you access to all our articles and early access to Quillette social events. Nothing happened to you this morning. Yeah, you're right. I just woke up and you were so sweet and nice. We were not even fighting this morning. All I did was say sorry. Did something happen to you this morning? I don't think so. No, that's the thing. You want to see crazy? I'll give you fucking crazy. Oh, you're crazy. You're crazy. Yeah, have you drunk this whole thing this morning? Oh, you got this going. You got this going. Oh, really? As some of you will know, those sounds come from the infamous kitchen video, a fragment of cinema verite captured by actress Amber Heard, in which her now ex-husband, Johnny Depp, storms drunk around their kitchen, smashing cabinets and generally acting violent. I confess that before I researched this podcast, I'd never seen that video or even heard of it. On most topics I cover on this show, I have some kind of expertise or at least long-standing interest in the topic under discussion. But that won't be the case today, as I discuss the sordid courtroom drama that unfolded in Fairfax, Virginia last year, following on the defamation lawsuit launched by Johnny Depp against his ex-wife Amber Heard. As almost all of you will know, Heard had effectively accused Depp of beating her during their stormy seven-year relationship, a claim that the Virginia jury ultimately found to be implausible when they decided the case in Depp's favor. With me to discuss all this is an unlikely expert, Washington-based literary scholar Charlotte Allen. Like me, Allen usually has somewhat la-di-da cultural tastes, but also has confessed to me a, quote, secret appetite for trash. And there was trash aplenty on display in this case, not to mention plenty of celebrity cameos, including Kate Moss and James Franco, suspected of canoodling with Heard in an elevator during one critical period at issue during the trial. Charlotte Allen channeled her interest in the case into a lengthy Quillette article published this past week called Scenes from a Marriage. In it, she praises the tactical brilliance of the Depp legal team, which included young wonderkind Camille Vasquez, and critiqued the implausibility of Heard's accusation. Allen also analyzed the general way in which the saga played out in the press. As Allen notes, many of society's elites lined up squarely behind Heard on the reflexive assumption that she was a Me Too truth-teller, while members of the general public seemed more likely to be charmed by Depp. Charlotte Allen, you have a degree in medieval studies and you've written for Quillette about fine literature. What's a nice woman like you doing <laughs> writing about this trash? Oh, that's a good question. I think I have a secret appetite for trash, for one thing. It's kind of funny. I didn't watch the trial as it was going on, but I started getting kind of interested in it, you know, watching little YouTube clips. And the people just fascinated me. I became fascinated by the dynamics of that marriage, how supremely terrible it was. But it was also obviously marked by a huge degree of physical attraction between the two of them. Um, the, the, the charisma of Johnny Depp, who was still, I mean, e even in the teens of this century, still pretty attractive. I mean, now he, he looks a lot older right now. But then even just a few years ago, he was very attractive. And so, you know, and Amber Heard was really gorgeous. So I just found it fascinating. And also I'm from Los Angeles. So I know the areas relatively well. I know West Hollywood fairly well and, and downtown Los Angeles. So I became fascinated just by the very building that they lived in, that very beautiful Eastern Columbia building which had once been a department store, but had been changed into condos. And they, and they lived in this sort of like a group set of penthouses. And that kind of fascinated me too. 
um, up on top of the building with all of Amber Heard's friends. The, the whole psychology of the thing fascinated me. Johnny Depp supporting all of these people who were not related to him at all, but were simply his, his wife's sister and her best friend and a couple of other people who drifted in and out. As I understand, Johnny Depp bought all of the penthouses on the top floor of this building, and it was this kind of like dysfunctional kibbutz of hangers-on. There's one particularly interesting guy, this guy Isaac Baruch, a longtime friend of Johnny Depp, although he comes off rather well. He was like a former bandmate of Depp. Depp used to be a musician, and he's trying to make it as a painter. <laughs> it sounds like instead he's just taking a lot of drugs. I'd never heard of this guy, but he actually plays a fairly critical role in the litigation. And for listeners, here's a taste of what his testimony sounded like. He looked at me and says, I got an idea. How about I be your patron? And we put together an art show, make a body of work, and then we'll, I'll throw a party and invite people and I'll sell the stuff for you and you could keep all the money. Did you, um, did you take him up on that offer to live at the Eastern Columbia building? Yeah, of course. I started crying. One day you're in your mother's garage selling paintings for $100, $200, $300 on eBay. Next thing you know, you're, you're, it's an art show and like you don't have to worry about Deadly Squad. Baruch was, is a very charming guy. He was charming in his testimony and he made friends with all of those people. He was Johnny Depp's old friend and basically his only friend in that group of people, the rest of whom were allies of one sort or another of Amber's. My sense, reading your article, is that if this were an F. Scott Fitzgerald novel, he would be the narrator. Yeah, that's a good point, um, because he had a real perspective that was quite independent of all the characters. And so that made him an extremely convincing witness for Depp. And as I pointed out in the story, he was one of the very first witnesses to testify. And as, as you say, he had that, that narrator's gift. And, and he came off as someone who basically liked all of the people there, liked Amber Heard, for one thing, uh, and uh, you know paid her little compliments from time to time. The two were fairly close. I, of course, didn't have um, the space to put that the depth of their friendship. But, you know, she would invite him over for dinner or lunch or, or whatever. So he was he was just a great witness. One of the points that I tried to make in the piece was that the the witnesses were for Depp were extremely well chosen, both in the substance of what they could give and also in the timing. Uh, so Baruch came off first, this very charming uh, sort of um, New York Jew, little jokes here and there, and was able to give a perspective that really seemed to be very objective, um, despite his friendship with Depp. One of the odd subplots here is that everyone involved, including Amber Heard, seems to kind of be living off Johnny Depp's largesse. Depp was very generous. He really threw money around. He and also had some, like, gothic mansion that he would occasionally retreat to when things got particularly unbearable with, with Heard. Is that right? He had this old castle, I think, built by some Hollywood mogul during the 1920s. Um, that he had bought. And then he went and bought several other houses on the street. And one of um, Amber's friends was living in one of those houses for a while. He used another for a studio. Johnny Depp just loved to buy houses. I think he had about 15 of them at one point. He had those. He had a whole sort of French village, as people called it. It was more like an estate with a big house. That was in Saint-Tropez, right? right. Yeah, yeah, near Saint-Tropez. He just loved to buy things. He had a whole collection of old cars, all sorts of stuff. And all of his places, if you look at the interiors in some of the videos, they're just packed with with stuff to furniture, paintings. The, um, The penthouses were very elaborately decorated, probably with depth taste. Uh, so he was just a guy, I guess, who had a lot of money and spent even more money than he actually had. We, we shouldn't talk about him in the past tense. He's, he's still around. And... He's still around, and he's still, yeah, he's still making money. Now, right now, I don't think he's got any 
movie roles, but I wouldn't be surprised if he did. We're going to talk a little bit about how dysfunctional this this marriage was. This, I guess it was about a seven-year relationship between the two of them. The marriage was only 15 months, but um, they were together off and on for about seven years. They both sound like completely unsympathetic figures to me. Like at one point, just, you know, in, in cataloging all the, the crazy stuff he did during some argument, Johnny Depp defaced a painting that Amber Heard had made. Who does that? This is scummy behavior. Yeah. <laughs> like it's amazing how as you're reading this, your your moral baseline just keeps going lower and lower and lower. And you have you have to remind yourself if any of our personal friends acted like this, it's the only thing we would talk about for the next six months. I mean, it would be horrifying to us. But in that world, <laughs> wait 15 minutes and something crazier is going to happen. And they're both so deeply unsympathetic. How do you explain why did the general public put down stakes with depth? Well, I think for the same reason that they flock to his movies, he has a lot of charm. I mean, kids love him. I, I when I told my one of my nieces who has three kids that that I was writing the piece, and she said, "Oh, my kids just love Pirates of the Caribbean. They just they they just love Johnny Depp." And he he just he has a lot of charm, and there's something about him. I mean, I agree. I mean, I I wouldn't want to be married with to him. I wouldn't want to spend you know a weekend <laughs> with him because he would just you'd end up with all everything. All the furniture would be smashed. You know, writing on the walls. Plus the fact that you know when people are drunk or on drugs, they're just they're not very interesting. They're 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 off in their own worlds, and you, you can't really communicate with them. But he had that charm. I'm sure that if I met him personally, I would just be charmed off my feet. He has old-fashioned manners when he proposed to Amber Heard. He asked her father for her hand. Right. He's that kind of guy. Amber didn't have any of these traits, so the deck was already stacked against her in that respect. She just doesn't come off as a very charming person. And you can kind of see why her movie career never quite took off because lovely as she was and probably a pretty good actress, she doesn't have that charisma that Depp has in spades. I mean, it's, it just overflows from him. And you could see this in Cordy. He would just he was a magnet for attention. I never saw any of the Pirates of the Caribbean movie, but uh, I did see Edward Scissorhands. Without Johnny Depp, that movie was was nothing. And of course, the Pirates movies wouldn't exist without him. I mean, he he is those movies. He's why people went to those movies and continue to stream them and show them to their kids. I remember hearing <laughs> one of many disgusting details from the trial. It was the thing about this grotesque argument about who had defecated in Depp's bed. Uh, you suggest in the article that it, indeed it was actually Amber Heard because she essentially boasted about it to a chauffeur. When you hear a detail like that, this relationship is so dysfunctional that one of the parties is actually using the bed as a toilet. <laughs> like there's two possible responses. There's the response you had, which was to, to write like a 20,000 word article about this. And there was the response I had, which is I didn't follow anything from the trial. Like, not only did I not follow the trial, but after I heard that detail, if I saw the words Amber Heard or Johnny Depp on the text crawl on a CNN screen at an airport, I went to go get a Froger. Was there ever anything in your mind that said at any point that like, this is this is just too vulgar. I'm just I'm, I can't do this. It kind of it wore me out mentally. I watched too much of the trial on YouTube. A couple of months, I would sit down and, and just watch this stuff during the summer. But again, I mean, I thought, well, this, it is a really interesting story. And it's a story about a trial. One of the things I tried to do in it was to show the mechanics of the strategies that the lawyers use to make their cases. And you suggest that Johnny Depp's lawyers, at least insofar as their strategy was concerned, seemed to have been superior. Of course, they had much more material to work with. They had more witnesses. They had videos of heard in the elevator the, a day after the incident when he was supposed to have hit her with the cell phone. And, and you can kind of see that her face doesn't look damaged. 
And she was carrying on with another man. That's right. I mean, the whole scene with Franco just didn't look good on any level. Strumpet. (laughs) If you watch that video, you know, that was one of the things that continued to intrigue me, even though, you know, I got to the point where I was kind of sick of watching this damn trial. And of course, that's what slowed me down. I mean, I should have gotten that story finished in a lot less time if I'd kind of figured out my own approach strategically a little bit more so that I wasn't immersing myself in stuff that was kind of a waste of my time in some way. Don't apologize for being an exhaustive journalist. (laughs) But you say, well, this is a story of a trial. In a way, it's a story of two trials. Because one thing that you highlight here, and I didn't know a lot of things about this, but this is one thing I didn't know, is that there was essentially two trials. There was one in the UK when Johnny Depp sued a newspaper for describing him as a wife beater. And technically, Amber Heard wasn't a party to that litigation, although she she did come and, and testify effectively on behalf of the newspaper. But it was it was the same issues that ended up being litigated when Johnny Depp sued Amber Heard for defamation in the United States. Depp charmed his American audience. Again, not the the literati, and we'll talk about that, who who to this day talk about him as a a villain figure in in the Me Too movement. But in in England, it seems to have been exactly the opposite. You cite at least one example where the judge seemed to completely believe Amber Heard. I don't know if charmed is the right word, but the judge seemed to, to believe kind of everything Amber Heard said and didn't seem to have much time for Johnny Depp. Was public opinion or Johnny Depp's charm, was that not a factor in England in the way it was in the United States? That's something I really don't know because, of course, that trial was not televised. The big difference, I think, well, there were two There were two things, I think, that swayed the judge. I mean, the judge was not charmed by Depp at all. And as you say, that was one of the reasons people didn't give Depp Originally, they they thought he he had no chance in the American litigation because the UK is a much more plaintiff-friendly jurisdiction when it comes to defamation. Received wisdom was, well, if he can't win in England, there's absolutely no way he's going to win when it comes to the United States, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was a trial that turned on two words, wife beater, that appeared briefly in a headline. In the sun, right? Right, in the sun, online, never in the print version, taken down fairly quickly afterwards. The other factor that I think played a part, might have played a part, is that juries are ordinary people. They're people off the street or just average citizens. And they're a different demographic bunch from a judge who moves in sophisticated circles. And it's was those sophisticated circles of the media that were so eager to condemn Depp. I'm painting with a broad brush here, but among the elite, the intellectual and class elite, there there was a lot more willingness to to buy into the Me Too movement. Okay, let's talk about that. There's a large swath of your piece up front where you talk about writers at The New Yorker, you talk about writers at The New York Times, at least one writer from Atlantic, who, as soon as the verdict, this is in the American litigation where Johnny Depp prevailed, as soon as that verdict came out, they were scathing in insisting that this was a travesty of justice and also a precedent that would set back women's rights by decades women who were abused in relationships, they wouldn't want to come out because their stories wouldn't be believed. And I got to say, as someone who didn't follow the litigation, maybe I move in some of these la-di-da circles, because a lot of my friends seem to assure me, uh, (laughs) you know, they say, oh, yeah, like, Depp has no chance. They seem to be of this elitist view that Depp indeed was a wife beater, and that you have to believe the victims and all this stuff. And I was, I was kind of surprised when he won the case. But was there any evidence that all of these people writing these op-eds and stuff had done the level of research that you had done? Because by the time I finished reading your article, and your article, of course, is based on primary sources, it's watching the actual proceedings and this trove of documents that came out after. These are documents that weren't admitted as evidence during the trial, but came out after and cast a lot of light on some of the personalities involved. Do you think that some of these people who insisted that there was a travesty of justice and that Amber Heard is a Me Too hero, 
dealt with unfairly by the, the justice system. Do you think they know everything you know and simply are ignoring that or they're just they're just going on the received wisdom? One of my thoughts is that they just ignored the case that Depp brought, ignored the cross-examination of Heard, and just paid no attention to it. If you read some of the commentary, there was an article that I didn't quote. He looked at the stories that Amber told on direct, that is when her own lawyers were, were examining her. And just assumed that everything that she was saying was true. And here she told this horrible story about being raped on top of a counter with a vodka bottle. And, you know, and she was headbutted and she was beaten and, and so forth. And no one listened, you know, that they, there's so much misogyny in our society that no one, no one paid any attention to this. So I think that, that there was a tendency on the part of the journalism crowd to pay no attention to the kind of case that Depp was building and no attention to the cross-examination of Heard in which that story w was completely blown apart by Depp's lawyer, Camille Vasquez, completely blown apart. This very dramatic story, she's being brutalized, she's up against a wall, he's smashing a telephone, he took a telephone off its hook and smashed it. Turns out that phone doesn't exist. Yeah. Because they had photos of the the condominium in which this supposedly took place. The chronology made no sense because according to her story, Johnny Depp had already lost half a finger. Right. <laughs> but was still smashing a phone, a phone that didn't exist, and then was attacking her with a vodka bottle. And then, despite the fact he was missing a finger, in the aftermath of that fight, she was texting her therapist saying, oh, I guess I'll never change that, and scrawling right. snarky messages on a mirror in the bathroom or something. She would have been covered with blood. She took no photos of herself. There she was photographing all the stuff that Depp wrote all over the mirrors. But she never took a photo of herself, even though she was in front of a bunch of mirrors. By the way, Depp wrote crazy stuff on the mirror, too. Depp was sending crazy text messages. Oh, yeah. I mean, he wrote all over. He wrote about, you know, a hundred times as much stuff as she did. I mean, he was just, he was crazy. He had drunk like about five vodkas. He was supposed to be on the wagon, but then he was having a fight with Heard, and he sat down at the bar and started just drinking shots of vodka. But going back to the journalists, because I'd like to make this clear, I think that they assumed if they followed the cross-examination, and the, the, the witnesses that Depp produced, they assumed that Camille Vasquez was just badgering her, was just, um, you know, subjecting her to more abuse after she'd already been abused by Depp. So that, so that they just didn't take seriously. I think that they just did not take seriously the case that, that Depp built, and they did not take cross-examination, which was absolutely crucial. I mean, that's what won the case for Depp, in my opinion. They did not take that seriously. They just assumed that she was, you know, beating up on this poor woman who had already suffered physical abuse. We think of movie stars as being able to have anything in the world they want. In Depp's case, he He'd point to a house, and apparently he would own it 20 minutes later. Right. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and one assumes, to a certain extent, it sounds like women were throwing themselves at him outside the courthouse, giving him, trying to give him gifts and such. I think the logical part of your brain says, you could have your pick of many women. Why would you pick the craziest woman at the bar to just get into endless fights with? They did nothing but fight, and they would... Did they ever have sex? They must have had... I mean, the sex... All I can say is, because I don't know a thing about this, is that the sex was probably great. But I think there was a just a kind of... There was a fatal attraction. I mean, she really, in the end, didn't want to lose him. And, you know, she goes to, to court and gets the restraining order against him. He's not supposed to approach her in any way, shape, or form. A couple of weeks later, she she's begging for a meeting with him. And she essentially, I, I describe in the story, they, they meet in a hotel room in San Francisco where he's, he's playing with his band. And um, she basically throws herself at him. She was essentially very attracted to him. And I think that's one of the 
tragedies of of the whole story is that they were two people, and he was also obviously very attracted to her because, as you say, he could have had his pick of any number of beautiful women and and did date very beautiful women in in his time, but he continued to be with Amber Heard, enduring what seemed to me from the evidence a lot of verbal abuse from her, not to mention her throwing things at him and whatnot. This whole melodrama in the condo supposedly involving a vodka bottle and all that stuff, the more banal reality, apparently, that you could piece together from the texts, he was trying to lock himself into a succession of rooms because I think she was following him around badgering him. Exactly, and she would do that. I mean, there's a, you know, I couldn't put in all the evidence that was presented. This The story would have been twice as long. She basically kind of chased him, but she knew of no way, no sane way to actually have a real relationship. And he's probably pretty much the same way. Well, they both seem to come from incredibly dysfunctional family backgrounds. Oh, yeah, both of them. You know, her father had trouble with drugs. You know, he had his mother was was obviously quite a case of abusing the children, throwing things at the children and at her husband who finally left. And then she got into a relationship with with some guy who later went to prison. Johnny really loved his mother and was very attached to her. And I think that that kind of created a template for relationship, his relationships with women after that. You know, I suggest that he possibly was attracted specifically to that kind of woman who would abuse him in various ways. So the two of them were kind of trapped in this relationship and they would be these horrible fights and destruction of property. I mean, and they'd get back together, for example, as I pointed out in the story, after this horrible event in Australia where she said that she had been raped and so forth, and he busted up the place. And I think that's where he painted over some of her paintings. They're back together a month later. His estate manager cleans up the place, restores it to its pristine condition. And then a month later, they're back filming down there again, the two of them. Right in that house where she was supposed to have been raped, there was something they were just drawn to each other, like moths to a candle. And and I mean, he finally he finally was the one who cut the thing off after the feces in the bed. He basically never went back to that place except this this one last trip a month later when he came over and I think to pick up something that he had left there. He just basically moved out and moved to West Hollywood. <laughs> One of his dozens of other right. yeah. And he came back and then that was when he was supposed to have thrown the cell phone at her and so forth. And that was the last time he really saw her. Neither of us are professional therapists, but I have heard that sometimes people who had dysfunctional childhoods will seek dysfunctional relationships in their adulthood because then they can rewrite those dysfunctional relationships in a way that gives them closure to the dysfunctionality of their childhood. And then, of course, that gets tied up with sex. You know, this is supposed to be an intellectual podcast, but I, I just <laughs> briefly, when when my wife and I moved to Toronto, we moved into this apartment and there were paper thin walls and we could hear everything going on in the next apartment. And this guy and his wife would get into these rip roaring fights, really corrosive stuff. But then they'd make up, and my wife and I would be like, well, here we go. It's going to be a night of sex, because they made up. They never actually got to the sex, I mean, from what I could tell. So, <laughs> oh, isn't that interesting? It's not wasn't the famous Jerry Seinfeld quote about makeup sex. No, yeah. there was no makeup sex. <laughs> they would watch TV. Oh. Yeah. And so anyway, I just I say that just because everyone entertains the stereotype that like when you hear couples arguing furiously and they stay together, you figure, well, you know, there must be some, you know, it's like a sine wave that goes up and down, but well, apparently not. We really don't know one thing about their sex life at all. I mean, neither has been forthcoming, which probably a good thing because it would have made, you know, very, it would have made the whole thing very sordid. <laughs> Unlike the reality, which is extremely edifying. Right. <laughs> But even more, I mean, it would just be even even more. So, I mean, at least both of them had the grace to sort of keep that kind of thing private. 
we now return to the high intellectual baseline to which our listeners are acclimatized. Are you? There's one, again, these, these trials, these Hollywood trials, and I think O.J. Simpson was the same way. They're always full of these fascinating, like, extras who come in for cameos. And what, well, actually, I'm not sure this guy qualifies as an extra. So his name's David Kipper. I'd never heard of him, but you describe him as this doctor, kind of like a doctor to the stars in his 70s. His specialty is rehab, though he seems to prescribe a lot of drugs in pursuit of rehabilitating his patients. And he's treating Johnny Depp, which I guess isn't that unusual. You know, a lot of celebrities and, and Depp is, is a mess. Like he's he's on, you list about half a dozen drugs that I can't even pronounce. Plus, he's always boozed up, plus cocaine. At one point, he's being interviewed and he's got all this hash and marijuana on the table. But like in his world, that doesn't even count as a drug. So here's a short edited excerpt from Dr. Kipper's February 22nd, 2021 testimony to the court. What did you discuss with Mr. Depp at that first meeting? At that meeting, I discussed with him my involvement in helping him with his substance issues. Did Mr. Depp say what substances he was trying to detox from? Yes. And as indicated in this note, it was polysubstance, so there was alcohol, opiates, uh, benzodiazepines, and stimulants. He's got some nurse who's also treating Johnny Depp, and like another nurse who's treating Amber Heard on Johnny Depp's dime, of course. Like there's this whole medical ecosystem that seems to surround this penthouse where they're all living. Were you shocked at how Depp and Heard just had this traveling pharmacy? And it, yeah, I mean, he, he had an inexhaustible drug supply. I think that there are doctors who specialize in treating drug patients in ways that involve giving them more drugs and drugs that are supposed to be designed to help them cope with withdrawal from the drugs that they're on. I became fascinated by Kipper just from the way he looked, his his hair and his very, if you watch him on video, his he had this very slow diction. And I thought, well, who is this guy? So, of course, I Googled him, you know, and found out his history that he treated Ozzy Osbourne or failed to treat him. And, of course, he has this whole, he had, at least in the recent past, you know, nurses who would basically administer the drugs that were supposed to be getting them off drugs. Presumably, and I, there's no reason for me not to say this, this is an accepted medical practice, but it sounds to me like it's too easy a route for drug addicts, right. and it enables them to just keep on taking drugs. For example, Kipper testified that he had tried to get him off of benzos, that is, you know, these anti-anxiety drugs like Xanax and so forth, which are very, very addictive, but then decided that he just couldn't do it because it was caused too much anxiety and physical pain for death, which I can believe because I had a friend who got hooked basically on Xanax after having breast surgery and had a terrible time just getting herself off the stuff. But that's the kind of thing. So he kept on, he kept on basically prescribing this anti-anxiety drug to which Depp was clearly addicted among other, his other addictions. So there's a kind, so there was something very murky about the whole thing in this, the nurses themselves. Well, you describe one as a, as an aging surfer or something. Yeah. And the other one, the other one too, they looked as though they'd kind of been seen too much of life. And maybe it was through the patients that they were treating. I don't know. So the whole scene had this bizarre effect. And of course it was, as you say, this traveling pharmacology. I mean, among the other entourages that Depp had was basically his medical entourage. I was especially fascinated with your account of some of the hangers-on or personal assistants 99.9% .9 of the time, all of like the hairdressers and the occasional flings and the old friends, the entourage of all these stars, you never really hear about it. But when you have litigation like this, everyone who observed a bruise or who didn't observe a bruise gets called to the stand. 
doesn't matter how low on the Hollywood totem pole you are, if you saw Amber Heard with a black eye, that's important information. You have this really interesting subplot. I think the woman's name is Kate James. Yeah. Kate James was Amber Heard's personal assistant, but she was essentially testifying against Heard. The behavior she reports is exactly what you'd expect from a kind of selfish Hollywood celebrity. The reason, of course, that she testified, that Kate James testified, one reason was that she had been fired by Amber Heard in 2015, I guess not too long after the two got married. Her relations with Heard were obviously not friendly, and she recounted a, a not very pleasant employment relationship either where she believed that she had been underpaid and and had taken a lot of verbal abuse from from Heard. And of course, Heard didn't like her much either. So the two of them were sort of at it. Well, you described it as a cat fight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a, that was a, an exaggeration since they weren't arguing with each other in court, but their testimony was certainly extremely hostile to each other. And of course, James's testimony was, again, not something that, again, undermined Heard's account of events because she was the one who went and fetched a bathing suit for Amber Heard the day after Depp was supposed to have kicked her on the airplane trip, on the private plane. Heard goes over and checks into a Chateau Marmont, which is a kind of Hollywood celebrity hotel, and immediately has as all her girlfriends over and they're all sitting there having a huge party the day after heard has says that she was severely abused by her husband. James's testimony really didn't help Heard's case. And that was the problem was that Heard couldn't find witnesses, credible witnesses to the abuse that she claimed that she had endured. You talk about the police being summoned after she claimed to have been attacked but when the police arrived, Amber Heard was uncooperative with the police officers, including a female police officer who took Amber Heard to one side and seemed to be very sympathetic. This was May 21, 2016, I believe. However, you describe how someone, Rocky Pennington, had photos which supposedly showed Heard having been brutalized with bruises and I think like a chunk of hair taken out of her, her scalp. Can you tell me about those photos? Because those photos seem to be hard evidence. There is one of Heard's scalp. There's a kind of bruise on it. And maybe there's a bare spot. Raquel, or Rocky, as she was known, was Amber Heard's best friend at the time. And she was the one who was sort of the recipient of a lot of the, the photographic evidence that Heard did have. Like she would, Heard would take pictures of Depp passed out from some drugs or or booze and send them to Pennington. And I think she sent her the photo of herself with the bruise on her arm. And Pennington took a picture of her scalp. And I think she took maybe another picture or two, but there was nothing when you looked at those pictures, it was very difficult to see any extensive injury. That's what I remember about them. I don't have them in front of me, but it was just difficult to see much that very much had gone on. Amber Heard claimed that she had experienced emotional abuse at the hands of Johnny Depp. As a layperson, I mean, I used to be a lawyer, but a tax lawyer, I'm thinking, okay, well, you know, that's good. You're raising the stakes against the other person. But you describe how actually by declaring that she had been emotionally abused, Amber Heard then opened the door to being psychologically examined. A psychologist then came in and examined Amber Heard and said she had borderline personality disorder, which is a very serious mental disorder, where you treat people viciously and you create drama and you're emotionally sadistic. You do have to realize that that psychologist, Shannon Curry, was a psychologist who had been hired by Depp's lawyers. I mean, that's which is not unusual because Heard's lawyers wanted to have their own psychiatrist examine Depp. I mean, that's not unusual at all. When there's a trial, the lawyers have to submit to the court the various witnesses 
that they plan to call and their qualification and the reason they're being called. The lawyers have to submit a witness list. And on Heard's witness list was Don Hughes, her own psychiatrist or psychologist, I can't remember which she was, who was going to testify, who was going to testify that Heard was suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder as a result of abuse, and which she did, in fact, testify to. Well, that created an issue of Heard's mental condition that gave Depp's lawyers the right to have Heard examined by their own psychiatrist who would then offer testimony as to Heard's mental condition in court. Depp's doctors, mainly Kipper, were simply going to testify about the drug treatment plan. I mean, that, you know, that he was on drugs and this is, and Kipper was also an eyewitness to the bleeding finger and to taking him to the hospital and so forth. They never put, they never accused Heard of sparking any particular mental disorder on, on Depp's part. So her lawyers tried to get a psychiatric examination of Depp, and they tried twice. They filed two different motions at, at various points as the trial drew near. They could not get an order for that examination because they never put Depp's mental condition at issue. Kate Moss makes <laughs> makes a cameo appearance here, kind of like a sitcom where like season five or six, they, they need to spice things up. So they just keep adding famous guest stars. Right. Right. Why, why did Kate Moss get involved in this trial? One of the incidents alleged was, according to Heard, Deb had tried to push Heard's sister down a flight of steps. Heard and Depp were fighting, and the sister kind of physically intervened and threw herself between them, according to Amber. And at this point, it looked as though Depp was going to push Whitney, the sister, down the stairs. And so Heard testifies, you know, it was just like when he pushed Kate Moss down the stairs. And of course, this just created an opportunity. The lawyers must have thought, oh, this is great. So they got Moss just as a kind of last minute thing. I mean, she testified by video, but there she was. Suddenly there's Kate, there's Kate Moss right in the courtroom testifying, of course, that he didn't throw her down the stairs. And Well, let's let our good friend Kate tell the rest. We were leaving the room and Johnny left the room before I did. And there had been a rainstorm. And as I left the room, I slid down the stairs and I screamed because I didn't know what had happened to me and I was in pain. And, um, he came running back to help me and carried me to my room and got me medical attention. I think a lot of people listening to this might have seen, if they've seen anything, they saw the so-called kitchen video. Uh, again, I I had not seen it. Oh, well, you, you should. It's really, I've watched it a number of times. But in a way, it kind of backfired because... At trial, didn't it turn out there was more to the kitchen video? It was sort of a director's cut that there were like these hidden scenes. The kitchen video, just by way of explanation, was a video that Heard made when the two of them, when she and Depp were living or staying over in Depp's castle in West Hollywood. And we don't know, know the date of the date of the video, whether it was before or after the marriage. It just it surfaced. She made a video of Depp in the morning. He's dressed in a kind of costume. He's wearing like a denim jacket and a cowboy hat. And he is thrashing around the kitchen of this of the house. And he's smashing cabinets and he kicks the fridge. And he pours himself this enormous glass of wine into this thing that, that into this thing where you can actually measure the wine because it's a mason jar. It's called a redneck wine glass, and it's a mason jar fused <laughs> to a glass stem. And, of course, on a mason jar, if you've ever done any canning or seen one, the the, the measurements are all there. You can see, like, the, the half pint and the pint. They're all etched into the glass. <laughs> so he pours himself like a, a, a pint of red wine, and he's screaming at her. You know, he says, you want to see crazy. I'll show you fucking crazy. 
here's what happened. The video was leaked to TMZ, the entertainment website that loves all this kind of stuff. And it's leaked right after the divorce filing in 2021. It shows Depp thrashing around the kitchen and then, and it ends with his lunging at Heard and presumably at Heard who's got her phone or her tablet set up to do the video. And so it shows him lunging at her. Well, it turned out that this, that particular version that appeared on TMZ in, in 2016 was not the complete video, which was subpoenaed by Depp's lawyers and probably taken right off of Heard's phone. It turned out that that video had been very carefully edited. The beginning and end had been edited so that you see Heard setting up her camera to, to photograph the whole thing. I mean, that Heard wanted to make a video of this particular incident. And then you see her at the end, after Depp has done his thing, you see her smirking into the camera. And the reason all of this came out at trial was that the that the TMZ employee who had processed the whole thing had received the um, the video from some anonymous source. It had come like secondhand to him, and his job was to get that thing, review it, and kind of put a TMZ stamp on it, and then stick it, stick it, post it on the post it on the internet. Well, he remembered specifically that there had been no beginning or end scene. So he testified to that effect at trial, that this that the video had been carefully edited by someone to paint a very damning picture of Depp. So again, it was one of those things that, again, didn't make Heard look good. One of the things you say in your article, and this was backed up by an anonymous juror, who gave an interview after the trial ended, this idea that Amber Heard was just a terrible witness on her own account because she gave these really overwrought, I think this juror called it crocodile tears, but then very quickly she would change her affect and start telling some story and it just wasn't credible. Just by way of example, here is a short segment from Amber Heard on day 23 of the trial. It's been agonizing agonizing, painful, and the most humiliating thing I've ever had to go through. I hope no one ever has to go through something like this. I just want Johnny to leave me alone. I just want him to leave me alone. I've said that for years now. I found all of this very strange because Amber Heard is an actress. And maybe she would get her story wrong. Maybe she would get caught up in contradictions. That happens to everybody. They say nobody has a good enough memory to be a good liar. But the one thing you expect an actor to do is act. And based on, on what you've written here, what really let Amber Heard down at trial was she was a crappy actor. Yeah, I know. She was. She was no, no, terrible. But could you elaborate on that? Yeah, I mean, I would watch these scenes, and that was not the only one. There were several of these. And she would she would recount this uh, an assault by uh, that she claimed Depp yeah, had 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 wrought, and then she would start to cry. But it was so so terribly unconvincing that the the tear. They, in fact, you didn't really even see any tears. She just her you know her face would crumple up, and then she'd go you know she'd sound as though she was crying. She just came off terribly, and I thought what. She's what kind of actress is this? And I mean, I, I think one of the things that it helped explain for me was ha, was that the fact that her career went nowhere after 2018, that she hasn't been in a single movie. I mean, she's she was a I think she she was probably a good enough actress and and so and very pretty so that she was cast in romantic roles in the movies that she was in but she just wasn't wasn't really a very great actress i mean it's very very sad but she could not pull that thing off so you have a paragraph near the end where you're summing up and you say quote reeling from the bitterly acrimonious collapse of her marriage Heard seems to have been unable to resist the allure of sympathy and status available by hitching her experience to a me too narrative 
that promised empowerment through victimization. And yet, on the stand, she found herself unable to reconcile that movement's central contradiction. End quote. Is that really fair? Because you suggest here the central contradiction of the Me Too narrative is the idea of empowerment through victimization. I mean, I guess the the generous way of saying that is saying it is empowering to come forward with a truthful tale of having been victimized that you weren't able to discuss before, and you tell the world your truth, and the world changes. And the world did change. I mean, after Harvey Weinstein, Hollywood changed. I think there were other changes in society. Is it fair to cast Amber Heard as a metaphor for the Me Too movement when I think a lot of people would say the Me Too movement has done a lot of good things? I think, though, she has nonetheless had a destructive effect on the movement. I think that when women come forth in the future, they're going to have to make a stronger case than Amber Heard made. So that I think she did help kind of slough off some of the marginal aspects of the movement. And in fact, since her case, you haven't really heard a lot of Me Too stories. My honest opinion about the Me Too movement is that there's a lot of exploitation in Hollywood, but it's a two-way street. And that a lot of these women, if you read Ronan Farrow's story, a lot of these, some of them were just plain naive, I'm sure. You know, meet me in my hotel room and we'll talk about the part that you could get. And I'm sure that there were, you know, some of these women. But a lot of the women went along with Weinstein. Although, in Amber Heard's case, the transactional nature of it was essentially emotional. It was a completely different kind of case, but it was, it did conform to the template in that she was a claimed victim of abuse who stepped forward to report that abuse to the public. And she's sticking with that story. And she's sticking with the story. I mean, that's, you know, in her Instagram report that she had dropped her appeal. I mean, she's basically sticking with that story. And I, I, you know, I don't know. I haven't read anything about any appearances she's made. Presumably, maybe she's going to go on the lecture circuit or something. Charlotte, you're not going to become like Quillette's Hollywood correspondent now, are you? <laughs> no. <I'm, laughs> that would be very funny. Because I'm sort of the opposite of a Hollywood type. <laughs> the problem is we'd invest a lot in you, and then 18 months from now, you're going to jump ship to TMZ. and that's Right, gonna right be, exactly. Yeah. I'm going to go work for... No, I did become really fascinated by that world, I've got to say. I mean, it's a world unto itself. Charlotte Allen has a PhD in medieval studies from the Catholic University of America. She has written frequently for the Wall Street Journal, the Los Angeles Times, First Things, and of course, Quillette. Charlotte, thanks so much for joining us on the Quillette Podcast. Well, thank you. It was a good conversation, and I'll be looking forward to listening to it. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Quillette Podcast. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent, grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by going to Quillette.com and becoming a paid subscriber. This subscription will also give you access to all our articles and early access to Quillette social events. 